The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. I remember some men started praying and others started crying. Um, Partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com the Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This episode is quite special for me because it's an interview I did several years ago in 2008 with a very good friend of mine, Ron Noyce. Ron lived here in Cambridge and was a member of Bomber Command, flying with Pathfinder Squadron as a Navigator Air Bomber. In this episode, I sat down with Ron and he had his logbook and his own private memoir on his lap and we talked about his service. His memoirs he wrote when he was 21 years old 
on the way back from Europe after the war's end. He had written up a diary right through his service and through his captivity as a prisoner of war. And on the ship on the way home, he took all those scraps of paper and uh, diary notes and compiled them into his own memoir, which was very precious to him. He, uh, he wouldn't let anyone else look at his book. So I was very privileged that he used it in this interview and read a number of excerpts from it to help with his memory. He was actually very sharp in memory, but uh, using the memoirs helped him along, as you'll hear. Unfortunately, Ron passed away last year, and I miss him greatly. He was a really good guy. He was one of those veterans that was continually interested in what was going on. He was very active, very fit, and well until near the end, and he was a real inspiration. Anyway, let's go to the interview. Here's Ron talking about his earliest influence in aviation. My uncle, he used to go down to Whanganui from up at a farm in the King Country, and he had a Tiger Moth license. And when he was qualified, he came up and flew around the farm one day, and I looked up and I thought, well, that, that's where I like to be. I had this stupid feeling that I didn't want to be in the army, I had to walk and I couldn't swim, so I didn't want to go in the Navy, so I thought I'd go up in the air. That was my th thinking. So in those days you had to go to uh, be interviewed. We went to Tickawidgee to be interviewed by uh, these guys with the yellow stuff on their caps. That was sort of a tough interview because we'd never, we'd never struck anything like that. I was only 17 and a half when all this. Anyhow, I was accepted and we had to do a pre-entry course at home of 21 assignments. Geography, navigation, arithmetic and trigonometry. Well, you sent your assignment in, it was marked, came back and sent another one. When you'd finished we went to Tamaranui to sit an exam. I can't remember, there were about, remember about 12 or 13 of us went here. And it took about a month before we heard anything. And they wrote back and said I was accepted to go to Hamilton for a medical. So I came up on the express to Hamilton and uh, went through all the rigmarole and they came to just blowing up the mercury and I said I had all this problem. And in due course I got to, let's say that I was temporarily unfit for air crew because I had cardiovascular inefficiency. Well, it didn't mean a thing to me, but I found out it was not enough air in your lungs to hold the mercury up. So I applied to go as a wireless operator on ground staff. So eventually I ended up, and on the 21st day of August 1942, I went to Harewood, Christchurch, to start on a course as a wireless operator, ground wireless operator. Well, I'd been there about a month, and as I said, we had half a day's training in the Army, half a day Air Force lectures, and physical training, and I went up to the, the office one day and said, would be in charge of having a medical for air crew? 
was arranged with a doctor on the, on the station and I was passed as medically fit for air crew. So that was the beginning. We went to Ashburton from Harewood, same procedure, half a day's lectures, half a day's aircrew. It was an AFTS training for pilots. Well, we, the only part we had the aeroplanes was pushed up, tying them down when the Norwester came down from the, the gullies. That's how closer we ever got to anything. So eventually we went from there to, to New Plymouth and the, uh, by this time they were sorted out um, more or less who was going to be air crew and who wasn't. So we, from there we went to ITW in Rotorua. Eight weeks of intensive course. Eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night. Two hours homework at night. You weren't allowed in the pubs until Saturday afternoon. You had lectures Saturday morning. You had a guy there who was known as a bull. He was a regimentation officer. He had eyes in the back of his head because we marched from hall to hall for our lectures and if one guy was out of step or one guy didn't have his cap on, report to me. He knew if you reported him what you were going to have seven days of CB. But he ran a strict school and everybody knew the rules and there were no excuses. If you're caught in a pub, out, that was it. Because in those days, six o'clock closing, so you only had Saturday afternoon. Well, it was intensive. And for eight weeks, there were 40 of us went in. And of that 40, and out was course number 40, there were 12 who didn't make it. They couldn't keep up with the lectures. Some got airsick. They had a, a, a gondola which swung. And they put you in there for 20 minutes. A number of guys who got airsick in that gondola were scrubbed because of that. Uh, some were colour blind. It was amazing all the little things that they picked up, which didn't sort of worry you. So when it was all over, you were graded. Navigators, 80%. Pilots, 70%. Wireless operators, 60%. Gunners, 50%. Anything out of that, you went back to the army. That was their grading system. Well, there were only four basic training stations in New Zealand. There was Fanuapai, Ohakia, uh, the one in Blenheim, and Harewood, and Tyree indeed was a subsidiary. Well, the pilots, they went to Blenheim and Harewood, the navigators went to Ohakia and was that a station? However, right, they, they went there. Now, there was a certain number to go to Canada. They could only train a certain number in New Zealand. So we went to the Commonwealth Air Training Scheme in Canada. And when you got there, it was the same thing. You're put into a manning depot where you waited until vacancies come. The navigators 
went to Edmonton to OAS and the bombers and bombers and gunners went to Lesbridge. In that area, we were in Edmonton. Over Canada, they had all different areas, but that was the area we were in. We did eight weeks of um, Blenheims on gunnery. It was the same story, half a day's lectures, half a day's flying. If if it was, if it wasn't, couldn't fly, you did more lectures. When we went to Edmonton, it was all on navigation. Now, the guys who were top markers on the ground, a lot of them couldn't hack it up in the air. If it wasn't for the old, they were all civilian pilots training us. And if they didn't know their way around, a lot of ancients would, <laughs> would never have got back because Alberta's just a great flat expanse with a railway line running through the middle and silos. And that was about, you had to watch those silos to know whether on your port or on your starboard side, you see. So that was, we had eight weeks of that intensive training and the same story. All the exams, they tabulated all your marks for your ground training, your air training, and uh, at the end of time, you're called into the hall and they read out the names of who was going to be who, pilots, navigators, gunners, such. Uh, oh, I didn't forgot to mention, once you start on your, your um, air training corps, air, air training, you had, were allowed to wear a white flash in your cap, and that, that was, you were somebody when you had that white flash in your cap, because when you got your wings, the wings were pinned on you and you took your flash out of your head. Right, from there we went on leave, went to England, uh, went down to Chicago, went across New York, up to Montreal, which took four days in the train. So we had a 14 days leave, so it was virtually four days waiting or catching trains. Or... So we arrived in uh, Montreal, we waited for the boat to go, we went across on the Ile de France. And it was full of uh, Canadians going to the, going to over to England. So we got to to Brighton. So we got to Brighton. Brighton was the depot for all New Zealanders. Bournemouth was one for Aussies, and we were a bit like that same now. Aussies. <laughs> <New Zealanders. laughs> However, there we went through the same procedure. You had more lectures, medicals. Waited, and that time they had a surplus of aircrew because they didn't have the aircraft. The aircraft 43, they were just starting to get a, a volume of, of lengths. They were just starting to come in 42, the end of 42, 43. So it was a matter of had aircrew, but nothing for them to fly. So as the, the planes are ferried across, do you realise that most of the planes are ferried across by women? You did, yeah. That amazed me. Only three in a crew flew them across, and then they flew them all back, and they flew. Yeah. yeah. So we uh, waited, <laughs> waited, and you go up to the orderly room and say, well, "We've been here for three months. How much longer? Oh, well, we'll call you when we're ready." And we sent out on leave to get rid of us. Anyhow, we 
Frank Pribble and I, everybody alphabetically. I, I was a bit of a nuisance apparently, and they sent us on a way over to sit on the battle course. And it was damn interesting. Uh, nothing to do with the air, no lectures on the Air Force, all route marches, um, instruction, you know. Basically, we'd, in a month, we've learned all of the, the basics for army training. We, First route march was five miles to a pub, came back. The second route march was ten miles to a pub, came back. The third one was twenty miles. Left early in the morning and they gave us two hours rest. Got back late at night and geez, mind you, we were fit then. We carried a rifle and your webbing gear. And used to, we had a couple of guys in the platoon who could sing. And, It'd start off and we'd march to the, and you know it's easy to march to, to uh, what music, but to somebody singing. But th th that seemed to make marching a, a lot easier. I know when we go to the parades, dawn parades, it's going to happen. Once the pipes start up, it, you seem to be able to keep and step easy. Yeah. Well, eventually, we went back, we were sent up to Padgate, because then the bombers, uh, Germans, they were coming out and flying over Brighton and any spare bombs they had they were dropping the there as they went out so they decided well, Padgate was away up north. But when we got to Brighton they said to us when the siren goes make sure you go down to air raid shelter. And we were four stories high in one of these private hotels in Bournemouth, uh, Brighton. And you know, just Frank Pribble and I, we were the first down in the, in the air raid shelter, just in our pyjamas, and God, it was cold. Then you know, the next time the sirens went, we off down there again, and nothing happened. So the third time the sirens went, Frank says, like at this. And we stayed in bed, and what happened? <laughs> Bomb blew all the windows. <laughs> the next night the sirens went, we were first down there again. <laughs> Never forgotten that. Bloody glass oh, shattered everywhere. So that was one of the funny parts of it. So, food. The mess breakfast was at 7 o'clock. Well, in Brighton, there were 630 pubs. And I reckon in the time we were there, we went to most of them. And You weren't too bright at seven o'clock in the morning. You didn't have to parade until nine. So there used to be a couple of little cafes on the road up and you could get spam and baked beans. That was a traditional diet. And a number of guys, <laughs> you know what spam is? Yeah, spam and baked beans. So that was, we're too you know, a bit sore and had to get up. So, the, uh, you know, Food-wise, Harewood was, was known as the hotel of the RNZAF. You had good sleeping quarters, you had good food, the best of food. Uh, this niggled the, the army boys because they said we were called the Blue Orchids, the uh, Little Cream Boys, because we had the best of everything. When they were in their base camps, yes, but when they were out of manoeuvres, they were in tents and they pretty rough going so there was always this thing between the army and the air force that we were 
looked after Fabian, and they were mainly because of the situation. The, uh, when we were on these ADU camps, we were in huts, and uh, it, it, we were brought back to earth because you lined up in the queue and you got what was going. It was basic food, but after coming from here, it was quite like going from Hotel Hilton down to, uh, to uh, what do you call it in town, the burger bars. <laughs> so, at all the permanent stations, you're very well looked after. All these air defence camps, and they'll plant them around where you did half a day of training, half a day here for it was basic. You got your plate and you have knife and fork and you joined the queue and washed your own utensils. On the permanent stations you just ate and left and put your dishes on the thing and that was it. Uh, we had good quarters, comfortable quarters, and say sheets on the bed which irked the army boys. Uh, and a fair amount of freedom, but if you stepped over the mark, it was great. Uh, SPs on the gate, uh, great memories. Mm. Let you away once, but uh, we got picked up. Frank and I one night. We had to wash aircraft engines for seven days because we were late, and that's at, that's at night on your own time. We don't wash them. So uh, when we got to England, the food was considerably more basic because they had rationing. Uh, I think a, a tripany chocolate bar was a chocolate ration. Had clothing coupons, so much sugar, and it, it reflected in the food that you got. It was good, wholesome food, but the, uh, there were none of the trimmings, you know. But uh, we were better off than a lot of the civilians who had to stand in queues and queues for the, to get there. Lion, there were a chain of Lions tea shops in England, great chain, and you could go and get a cup of tea and scones or something like that. Basic but nice, if you know what I mean. And uh, a lot of us would skip breakfast, go up there morning tea. But they were in most of the big cities, very tired, very clean. And uh, I don't know how they got around it, but they seem to have more than the average. Uh, for eating hours had. Did you have to have a ration book to go into a tea room or? You had a ration book, yeah, but if you went to stay with people and leave, you got a ration book which had so many clothing coupons, butter, sugar, tea. But on the on the base you you ate what was put in front of you. You didn't have a choice, it was uh, and you didn't have a lot of roast meals, it was mainly easy to prepare food, but wholesome food, yeah. And as, as I say, a lot better than a lot of poor civilians said because a, or even meat was rationed, you see. Uh, that they, they, not what they could afford, it's what you were allowed to buy. That's what it boiled down to. So when we got to the the uh, training camps in England, so the manning pools, it was pretty basic. And we went up to Padgate, it, it was a, a newer station. 
and they hadn't got themselves properly into gear then. And things were pretty basic, uh, washing facilities and showers. Um, and the, the food, it, it was, say, good wholesome food, but none of the trimmings. And uh, uh, where we used to sort of everything being on tap, it wasn't there. You had to go and get it because they in the process of building this base up. The, uh, every station we went to, permanent station in England, we were, we were well looked after. We, were, we had, I will tell you later on why, <laughs> but, and this again rankled the, the army guys because at this time they were starting to build up for D-Day. Like they were, they were twelve months building up for D-Day, and, and this army lodge would be brought in to be based down mainly in southern England, and uh, they were pretty—I don't say rough, but pretty hard conditions because no way they could could uh, house them. They wanted to be tents, and we're talking about thousands of men had to be fed a lot of have two meals a day because of the time it took to feed them. And then you go into a pub and uh, you sort of were very tactful about, we'll, we'll drink up this end and the uh, army will drink down that end. It never came to well, anything, no fisticuffs, but it was always a bit of a niggle, you know, where you, know, you, you fellas get everything and we're expected to do the same job and basic things. But that had nothing to do with us, of course. So, training in England. We, uh, uh, we got in first. So I've got all my leave things in here as well. Operational training. Ah, uh, we went to a drum at Penrose, in Wales. It was a permanent station. Everything about it was good. The course is all New Zealanders and Australians, and so was so was some of the uh, hard heads here. Hey, um, ground training commenced at once, and we found the work a bit hard, having been away for it for so long. It was the forerunner of ops, though, so we were to make ourselves industrious and learn all over again. We had navigation, bombs and theory, physical training for a week. That time we were fed up with classes. It was during this time that we saw a Wellington praying, ran to Mount Snowden, and it didn't look so good. In time we took to the air to see some pilot navigation, bombing. It was all very interesting and something to be back in the air once more. Wales was a strange place, or seemed to to us, the people here weren't impressed, apparently, as they took very every opportunity to avoid us. And it was impossible for them. They spoke in their Welsh language. Food was plentiful, though, and we patronised a cafe where MI eggs were obtainable. <laughs> Strawberries and cream or something. In the offing also. Beaches were lovely, though the water was a bit chilly. When the weather was anywhere good though, we were into the water. 
like fish. On Thursday, 29th of June, we had to leave the station and go to a satellite drone to do our night flying. We were taken by bus to Clandrog, a new place, and it was very nice travelling through the country. The drone, though, was an entirely different place to the one we'd come from. It was widely dispersed, and from general appearances, looked very unappetising. We had another week of ground training and commenced our navigation trips. Here we had to work once more, as our air work counted a lot in the final exams. During one month here, we were given occasional 48s, which we spent on seeing whales. It was very pretty in spots, and we enjoyed our rambles, travels. And climbing up Mount Snowden, but we never had the energy to climb to the summit. We explored Carnarvon Castle, where the Prince of Wales was born, and later the town itself. Sometime later we went to Bangor, where we were never very happy. We were never very happy anywhere we went, as we could see that the Welsh people didn't want us. It was strange that they would talking English and they'd break into Welsh. End of our course, we had more exams, and sometime later our postings came through. It was here that the gang was about to break. We were posted to different units. Frank and Ivan threw some bungle posted to NTU. Eric and Alan were posted to OTU, and I was posted to another. It was on Tuesday, 15th of August, 1944, that I arrived at my operational training unit at Peplow, which is way up in the Midlands found that I was not expected, I was supposed to be there. However, until I was posted to my real unit, I had to carry on with the course here. The course is mainly revision of AFU work, except that we learned about the Mark IX bombsite and the intricacies of G. Later on, we did some flying in Wellingtons, and I was not impressed by them at all. It was a typical training station, wide dispersed, had little or not much red tape for any man's comfort. On the 4th of September, I was posted to my new unit and I was very happy to turn my back on this place. My next station was at Warboys. And when I got there, I found I was to go with mosquitoes as a navigator. I told them this was wrong. They had told me I was in the 1655 mosquito training unit and that was that. In the ground training, we had to learn a mosquito inside out and with navigation training both on ground and in the air was G only so it wasn't too bad. When we had qualified in Oxford and our pilots could fly a mosquito we were sent to Witten to do our mosquito training. This was not much to choose from between Warboys and Witten. They were both good stations and there was a distinct lack of red tape. Short time of training was open we were ready to fly. Why did you, um, why weren't you impressed by the Wellingtons, do you remember? Huh? You mentioned you weren't impressed by the Wellingtons. Oh, Christ, no. The, <laughs> <laughs> the number of them went to US, the oil used to come out of the motors and they rattled and banged like hell. I don't know how they flew them, they were terrible bloody things. The noise in them alone, but the number of times that the one motor packed up on them, because they got flogged, of course, because until the land came along, they, they were the workhorse. They used them for mine laying, for bombing, you name it. And the number of them got shot down because it, they were like birds, they were so slow in the air. 
No, I, I, I didn't like Wellington, that's for sure. Did you like mosquitoes then? Yeah, but uh, I, I wasn't happy. Uh, it wasn't what I sort of looked forward to, you know what I mean? I was like a kid with a lolly. I was looking forward to something and it wasn't what I really liked. But the fellow said I was there and I was stopping there and it was, they were short of mosquito crews at the time. This was what governed a lot in the air crews. It was where they were short of crews. They grabbed you irrespective if you weren't highly qualified. They said, well, we'll soon teach you. That was their idea. But uh, I was quite happy to leave there. In about the middle of September, oh, yeah. I never found out it wasn't really like this towards September. I was told I should I've been on Lancaster's and not on mosquitoes, so I went back to the Pathfinder Navigation Training at Warboys. Here I did another short course on bombing and Pathfinder technique on the 4th of October 1944. Went to my real job at Transnor Lodge, a visual air bomber in Lancaster's. You actually had done some bops on the um, mosquito there before that, hadn't you? Uh, you no, no, we only training, only oh, training, right. yeah, no. Yeah. no. No, never got around to that. Yeah. No, I was happy about it. No, the pilot, he was flying officer, he was a real Englishman. And I had nothing against him, but I didn't, we didn't sort of knit, you know what I mean? Uh, he sort of like as though he was an upper class and I was, I'm not saying that that's right, but that was how I sort of compared it. I was a Kiwi. I'm not, I'm not saying this is right, but I felt that there was a difference between us. Oh, I did my job, he did his job, and we never had any problems. But where's old Skipper? He, he's a different sort of personality altogether, you see. So, we got the grounds in the lodge. We're taken by taking our new home at Grandson Lodge by truck. We wondered where on earth we were going. I've left Huntingdon behind. We seemed to be travelling through rough, wild country without a sign of any life. I can tell you that our speculations of our new home weren't very high. 5pm our journey came to an end and we found ourselves on a drum in the middle of a flat expanse. Dispersed as much as possible. There were Lancasters there though and that was all that interested me. Truck dropped us off, and after settling in, we went up to the mess. Here we found a typical operation feeling. Everyone was happy. There was a, a loose feeling throughout the whole place. Later in the evening, we went to the only other. I met the only, only other Kiwi and learnt that in the end, learnt the end or the in and outs of life. So this was 405, the Canadian Pathfinder Squadron, where you made your name or you went back to where you started. I went to bed that night a much happier boy. The next day was one of the usual first days in the unit, a lot of signing of papers, talks from various people. A bit of this time was different as everything was about ops. I was told by the bomber leader that my crew was to be but by some bad luck, I met none of them until the following day. On the 6th of October, I met my crew, who was to have gone on a training flight with them. 
the last minute this was cancelled, and we were put on an operations list. And so at 3.30 p.m. we took off on our first daylight trip to Germany. The sky seemed full of eight aircrafts, and I often wondered why there weren't many more mid-on-air collisions. The place we went to was distinctly unfriendly, and we came home much the worse for wear. After night raids, I didn't think too much of these daylights. They offered ample opportunity for sightseeing, and that in time we saw a bit of air. France and Germany from the air. That was the only place I wished to see it from. Both countries were undoubtedly, undoubtedly pretty at one time, but by now they were sadly bomb-scarred and showed signs where bitter battles had been fought. As in all things, we began the bottom on this job and went to support trips until the commanding officer thought that you were fit for marker work. From supporting, we went, work, we moved up to marking, and then we became known as visual centres on visual backers up. You had to work your way up on the job as you began centering late in the raid, gradually you worked your way up until you were in first. Next, the most interesting stage was primary visual marking. On this job, you marked amongst the first and by the night of illuminating flares. From here, you graduated to deputy master bomber and later master bomber. These two jobs were the height of the visual ambitions, as it meant that you were responsible for marking the target and controlling the raid. And so one's career went on until you either finished your two tours of operations or you joined the ranks of the many who had gone missing. So you were basically only um, only on the squadron for a couple of days and just met your crew and you went straight off on an op? Yeah. We were supposed to go on a training flight, but they were short of a, a because, um Every squadron was delegated so many aircraft to put up. And I can't remember why that we came to be on this thing, but they just came along and said, you're a chooser, but <laughs> I can remember saying, to us, you, I had an idea it was... So that was your first flight together? As huh? a, that was your first flight together as a crew then? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> nice way to meet them. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, oh boy, let me squad. God damn it all. Stuck raid. Stuck raid. 15, 12. 12 minutes past three in the afternoon. Three hours twenty. We carried 18, 500 pounders. And everybody a heavy flex. <laughs> I remember we were about, oh, probably 10 miles from the target, because we were well back in the raid. So all the pathfinders and that all gone through. And there was this great big black cloud. And I said to Skipper, Christ, I said, it's clear all around us, and there's a great big black cloud over the, where we're going to bomb. And he said, Sonny, that's flak. <laughs> all these shells bursting, yeah. We went in above that. We were lucky to... I've never forgotten it. It just looked like a black cloud. And I said, and he said, Sonny, that's flak. But we didn't get a mark. We were above it. And by this time, we just dropped our bombs and 
the middle of the inferno. Yeah. Were the fighters about? Enemy fighters? I can't remember. No, I said, you were talking about 62 years ago. You see, yeah. I wouldn't remember this, but yeah. it's all written down here. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a ghost of, <laughs> of me telling you what happened because I don't care who you are. Yeah. You don't remember it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this, see, I wrote this when I was 21. You've got to remember back, yeah. I was written 60 years ago. So, uh, so uh, tell me about your crew. Who who were well? I'm uh, just coming on that. Yep. They were the best. I don't care. We had the best crew. In the, we were called the Cossie Club. When I first met my crew, I didn't really know what to think. They were a mixture of Canadians, Americans, and Englishmen. And there I made the fourth country. I had no chance to get to know them before their operational. Career began, but I got to know them that way faster than any other. They were a great team. The crew of cooperation was really marvellous. Later in our career, we had a new gun and wireless operator, the previous two having finished their tours, but the original spirit still remains. The reason I think we were all so happy was that we had a grand skipper. My skipper, Harry Marcoux, was a French Canadian who had been in the Air Force for six years. He was now 26, a squadron leader with an Air Force Cross, had over 5,000 hours flying in training command to his credit. It was not his flying experience that made him what he was, it was his disposition. To speak to him, you would never know that he was an experienced pilot, he didn't try and convey that impression. He was the most popular man on the squadron, everybody knew him, and were doing for him. Consequently, his crew were popular. If anyone ran foul of him at all, though, they knew he was hard but fair and gave no favours. To his crew, he was a real leader and more or less a father. If anything went wrong or we could not get any cooperation from a section or other, he made his business to see that the matter was rectified and that we had a fair deal. He also made his business to see that we did sufficient training, both in air and on the ground. The engineer and myself had to do link training and, and flying, and the whole crew had to be dinghy and parachute drill regularly. That's mainly because of his conscientiousness that I owe him my life. Our engineer was a boy like myself. He was Eric Boland, a flight sergeant, aged 20, and he lived in Blackpool. I spent some time with him as we were same age and both a bit scatterbrained. He knew his job though and had done 50 operations before he joined us. He didn't have to fly anymore, but he wanted to fly. Next member of the crew was our set operator, a type all of his own, Bernard Smoker. Smoker to all of us was a Londoner who had seen 32 years of life, was a flying officer. He was forever playing bridge, liked a pint or two, and he was a great man on the set, so it is him that I owe to my success in marking. A small thing about him, he was a chain smoker. And on a long flight, when we got back from and landed, he would run, virtually run, the 50 feet away from the aircraft, and you could hear him sucking in the smoke, because by the time we got back over him, he was getting pretty scratchy. Man, he could drink beer. Oh, he smoked. 
Our navigator was Tom Downey from Birmingham, another flying officer, 22 years of age, who was with, was with him that I spent most of my time and we had a lot of fun together. His one ambition was to get his two, two tours done so he could get married. He had wanted to be married sooner, but it was against our principles. Every crew on the squadron that a married member eventually went missing, and that's true. Uncanny, that was. The first wireless operator was a steady, careful type and had always every happy, was always very happy when the, we landed our props. Weren't we all? He was Don Vokens from Newbury, 28 years old. He was also a flying officer and a marvel on his box of wheels. His masterpiece seemed to be joining, jamming German controllers. His successor, John Lewis from Nottingham, was equally as good. He was also a flying officer, but only 22 years, and it wasn't until after months that I learned how good he really was. Our gunners were all very good, but they had a very quiet career with us, as none of them ever fired their guns on operations. Bill Hamlin, the rear gunner, was an American from Detroit, joined the Canadian Air Force. He was 28 years old, became a flying officer, a flight lieutenant during his career with us. Never had much to say, drank very little, so we didn't find out too much about him. His successor had been our mid-upper gunner, and he was just the opposite to Bill. He was John Ross, another American from Jersey City, who had joined the RCF. He was 22, he was another flying officer. Had his job, he was very good, but he would talk anybody to a standstill, and a lot of them were just so much tripe. Our new mid-upper gunner was another American who had just married, just married, a waff from the mess. He was a nightmare, but was the only gunner we could get. He was a technical sergeant from New York, Vernier by name, and he was 23 years old. Often he was late for briefing. More often than not, he would arrive at the aircraft covered, <laughs> covered in a lipstick. And so at the end of our career, there was eight members in the crew. We had six officers, two sergeants, a bit tough on the NCOs, but that was how it worked out. So that's our crew. They were the best crew on the squadron, in my estimation. Most, most of our operations were at night. We did a few in the early stages when the army were moving up, but as they moved forward, most of our operations were in the Ruhr Valley, where we bombed uh, in Munich, then we, when the 50 officers were shot, Bomber Harris said, it's open slatter. We do the cities. And there was a lot of friction about it because the army didn't want the cities damaged in the hierarchy. And Bomber Harris said, just think back, Rotterdam, London, the docks, what was inflicted on our country. It's time we paid them back. By this time we had a big fleet of Lancasters, the big bombs, and it was open slatter. So by this time too, the Germans had this night fighter uh, homing device, and they got a lot of Lancasters because you've got to, a lot of the raids I was on, we had 150 to 250 lengths, depending on where you were going, what you were after. And the fighters got amongst them, 
and there were so many aircraft. Okay, they had twin engines, a lot of them were junkers, um, 88s. And it wasn't, was there much shot us down, because it wasn't until later in the war they brought out one of the upper firing guns. But previous to that, they four forward firing guns and tailor gun. So they got a lot of aircraft because of the numbers in the sky. And so what we were saying, surely you could see it. So well, well, you're up there, all you see is a black shadow. Like, there's no defining marks, no, they don't have the dream lights on or anything like that when you're flying up here. So, some, some of them were a bit hair-raising. Then you got into the flak and so, I didn't like the searchlights because once they picked you up, it was uncanny, they, they handed you one from one searchlight down and just pumped his flak up, up the searchlights. And uh, they were, in my own words, German gunners, they were bloody good gunners. They knew their job and, man, I, I would hate to ever think how many aircraft they shot down. But you see them you know, spiring down in front of you and fire. And uh, so when you got back, sometimes you, you were a bit, a bit stressed out. You had to go to interrogation. And uh, our pathfinder leader, Bennett, he had his own bowfighter. And he would take off two hours after us, we'd go to the target, come back, land, and he'd go to the various squadrons at interrogation. Well, unbeknown to us, he'd been over there himself, you see, and had a look. And this night we'd come back, it was on Munich. And the Germans had lit spoof fires around the city and now we, we made a mess in Munich because we went on a when we went to England we went on a tour bus tour and coming back we came through Munich and the bus operator was in New Zealand and he said oh we've got a guy in the back here who was one of those who bombed Munich during the war and it had been rebuilt into a beautiful white city all, all on the at international money, it was after war. It was beautiful. However, we would come back from Munich, and uh, it had been a bit rough. And we come back, and we were at interrogation. And uh, when you get back, to three padres there with a cigarette and a cup of tea, and they give it this tot of rum, the real navy rum. And, you know, I wonder me. You know, your fingers are a bit. <laughs> So you go into, into the interrogation and you navigate and say, we bombed such and such a time and such and such. Uh, the said, we didn't see anything, didn't fire at guns. Set operator said, well, the set was US and I couldn't do anything or it went on the blink or something. You'd, you'd, every little thing, you'd ta it went on the, on the report. Anyhow, I, I gave my spiel that I bombed, as I thought was a close to the aiming point, because every time you dropped a bombs, you, a photo was taken of that on the ground, you know that, don't you? Flash and all. So there's nobody saying you bombed there, because the photo shows where you bombed, you see? Anyhow, I had my say, which was just normal. Anyhow, he said to me, you didn't say anything about the fires that were on the 
stop it short of the target. And I said, well, I thought everybody else has been before me. They just said about that and skip it. Bloody shins. When he got out, I got, I got remonstrated for <laughs> giving, not giving a civil answer to the thing. That's my, one time I really, you know, told me to, <laughs> you don't do those things. But that was, he, and uh, you only had one chance with him. You made one mistake and you were transferred to Bomber Squadron. He was, t he was tough, but he had a highly respected pathfinder force. Now Cochrane had five group up in Lincoln, and they were like that. They hate each other's guts. And uh, we were on, often we were on the same targets because you had to be. But there was always that friction, you know, five group versus eight group. However, so when it was all over, Bennett tried to get a, a medal for the bomber command. Cochrane and um, Bomber Harris tried, and the army mainly said they had, did not have a specific battle. There was the Middle East, there was Crete, there was Greece, Italy, Atlantic, and Europe, all where the army was concerned. They're all specific, but you don't have a specific battle. And they pointed out we had aircraft in the air every night possible for five years and they didn't count that as being a... And we had to buy our medal, I got it, with a link on the back, cost us 50 pounds. But there were the things that rankled us that felt that because there was no specific battle that entitled us to a medal struck. They struck one for the... Um, Fighter boys, because they said that was a specific period. So it was just one of the things that uh, came up. Righto. We uh, went on for 30 trips. We uh, used to have our meal of fish and chips, and our bacon and eggs and chips. And we used to call it the Last Supper. You went to briefing and you're lucky enough to come back home. We had our fish and chips, me or fish and bacon, eggs and chips. And we used to call it a survivor's return. That was our way of putting it. And I said, on the squadron, everything was laid on. The only thing you bought was your grog. Christmas time, like the Canadians had, turkeys they had, you name it, it, it was like a or better than a wedding breakfast, the food they had, because there was no rationing in Canada, so the food was shipped over en masse. And it, it, six months I was in a squadron, it was like living in a first-class hotel. We had a batman, we had 12 in the hut, 12, in had an hut, and you got out of bed in the morning, you, you left your laundry there to be taken away. You had to pay for it, but it was only a minimal thing. You came back to the place was clean, the beds were made. And, but in the six months I was there, the guy in the bed next to me changed seven times. And in the morning, you, you, if you were an officer, you'd come back and you'd, 
the SPs have been picking up all this chaps keen and use them that they didn't come back. So the big thing on the on the squadron we there was a pub just a house or two bars in the front about a mile down and from the squad from where we were and uh, that was a place you go down and let your hair down. The old lo locals got to know us, and there was an old fellow had a farm next, to, right next to where our huts were, and he had oats growing it. And when it was harvested with the old reaping binder, and it made them into bundles, and he had a horse in the wagon, and he was going around picking these up, and we were on a stand down. And I, I said to him, "Well." I'm off a farm, I'll come and give you a hand. Oh, he says, it's hard work, laddie, hard work. So I said, oh, I've done it before, so I had a pitchfork, and I really enjoyed it. We put this stuff and took it, and we were just storing it in the shed, and they cut it up for chaff, you know. And he said, we'll have to go down to the pub. <laughs> Don't remember getting home. <laughs> well, ever after, we went back down there, laddie, laddie, and they said, when the the news, because the news filtered down when some crew came back and they said the old fellow cried when he heard that we'd gone missing. Yeah, but they were little things, you know. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I was saying about the coming back, I'm not sure where the hell was that, might have been on Dresden and Semnitz. We got back at the time we'd been to the briefing, had your breakfast at five in the morning. And all five officers and the skipper said, well, to the Irk who was cleaning up the bar. He said, oh, I'll have five double whiskies, please. And the Irk said, oh, we can't do that, sir, because the bar doesn't open until 11 o'clock. And he said, do you want to be here tomorrow? And, oh, yes, sir, yes, I'll get the whiskies right away. <laughs> it was quite matter of fact, you know. Yeah. And he said, this Tommy, he was a rugby fanatic. He still is. And... Uh, when we came back on somebody's ops, he pushed the chairs back in the lounge and usually to his right, my cap, and we'd have two aside and we'd play this rugby. Yes, there were the ways you let off steam when you sort of came home. And my skipper, he had a, he was, pardon me, he had a bike. The rest of it had to walk. Well, the huts were all a mile away from the... Was, just a big circle, planes all dot around it. All the quarters were all spread apart, so if anybody came, they could only get one area. And uh, he and I used to get a, a few in, and he'd say, well, I'll double you home on the bike. Well, in the winter, there was a bit of snow on the ground at times, and I would steer, and he would pedal, and many times we ended up in the, in the drain. <laughs> Yes, that was a skipper. He loved life. He loved life, but he was a wonderful man. Could, could you tell me what you, um, what procedures you went through when you went on the actual bombing run? Because you actually took over the flying of the aircraft, didn't you? As the, as the no, you don't take over the flying. You take over the navigator. You, oh, right. Yeah. No, you, the system Tom and I worked out. They they had to when we. Left the base, you had the wind emit supplied. 
wish to rendezvous over, rendezvous over Reading. The people in Reading must have cursed them. Imagine 250 Lancasters, four motors of noise. Mind you, only be for a quarter of an hour, I suppose, but there's noise they must have made. And when we went over the French coast, most times I could get an exact reading of where we were. I had a map and I pinpointed it. He took the time, I handed it up to him, and he checked how much drift we had in about half an hour's flying, you see. And if it was too far out, he said to me, are you sure? You've got it right. And I'd say, well, okay, we've got the river coming up. I'll check it at the next river. You can see rivers, railway lines, uh, canals, quite distinct, especially if there's a, a, a bit of moon. Uh, and we used to check out, he was, he was a bloody good navigator, he would be very rarely more than a couple of miles out, and that would be because the wind was given. But we fell in one night, like everybody else. The med officer got it wrong. They said, instead of being 180 degrees, it was naught degrees. Instead of having a tailwind, we flew into a headwind. It took us six hours, no, four hours to get to the target, an hour 50 to come home. Do you a stink over that? Because uh, easy to make a mistake. Instead of having a tailwind, we had a headwind. Uh, Now, basically, we uh, went to dinghy drill. We went to Bedford. And uh, it was a, a day on the stand down. Bloody cold, miserable down. Bedford from the squadron was about 60 miles away. And he said, well, we'd put the dinghy in the um, pool upside down. Because he said, when your ditch is no saying it's going to be right way up. So we climb up on this tower. We're 20 feet up. And I said, geez, it's a long way down. He said, I'm not going down there. He gave me a push. <laughs> down the water. <laughs> and it's a hell of a job of turning a dinghy over. Those big dinghies. You know, I got underneath the goddamn thing when I turned it over. I come up and I was splashing away like... Yes, oh, I'm not going down there. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that were the things that, you know, I still laugh about that that happened. Yeah. And that's what squadron life is about. When you're on the job, you're on the job. When you're off, you're relaxed. Otherwise, not jokes wouldn't... They wouldn't have finished their tours. We only had one fellow who went LMF. Only one. And I still regret to this day. I was one of those who who needled him. He he he, he just he'd been to the MO and the MO said, You're finished. You know why you're ever gonna fly again. Instead of shipping him out of the mess to some other place, he had to stay there the next day. And you got a few beers in you know, I still regret to this day that I, I was one of those that needled that poor bugger. And thinking back, he died oh, quite some time. We were never going to write until he died. I would have written and expressed my 
apologies. That's one thing I've never, never really got over. But she, I was only 20. Well, that's how life goes, you see. But he was the only one. <coughs> had, a lot, lot of, had a lot of guys who were pretty close to the borderline, but uh, once I got a few drinks and a bit of sleep, I'd come back to face another day. But we lost on an average one crew a week. Some weeks we might lose three, and then we might have a run where we lost nothing. But it, it got to be a sort of a sweepstake. You'd, you'd think to yourself, now who the hell is going to be tonight? Who the next? Yeah. Yeah. We might um, lose one a week, then we might go for three or four weeks without losing it, and then we'd have another spate. There didn't seem to be any reason. Um, um, Munich was one of the worst. That night we lost 85 aircraft. That's only what we lost, not crash landed, and that was terrible. And that was, the fighters got into them. I wasn't on it. The fighters got into them, the flak, and they, they had a massacre. Uh, well, how, do you, how do you feel about the fact that you went for 30 missions and your gunners never had to fire the guns? That's must, that must be incredible. Well, I, Yes, well, my skipper, his philosophy was, we're here to mark a target. If you have a go at one and you miss, he said he's bound to get us. We flew alongside a Junkers 88 one night. She had twin stubs and the mid-upper gunner said, Christ, I could get him, skipper. And that's what the skipper said, we're here to mark a target. If you miss, that's it. But... We we were averted. We never had reason to fire them because that was his philosophy. If they looked as they were going to attack, a different story. But none of them ever did. So that was his way. We uh, landing on Fido. We took off at four o'clock. I just looked in the book here at four o'clock in the afternoon to go to Bingen. to Bingen on the Rhine River, which is five hours twenty flying time. So we got back about nine o'clock. You couldn't see East Anglia. She was fog bound. So we got diverted to down the market, which was about sixty miles north of our drone. And there were sixty aircraft went in there. Because that was the only fight in East Anglia. They had others up in Lincoln. But that was for the Pathfinders in East Anglia. And I said, a few went off the end of the runway because they couldn't get the old lady to sit down, and she kept on going. And I said, at the end of the runway, lots of tyre marks where the skippers had applied the brakes fairly severely. To, and the skipper said she just wouldn't land with the heat coming off the fumes. So that was quite interesting exercise. We were, you can imagine, 60 times 8. That's 480 extra people <laughs> fed, sleeping on, I think I slept on a blanket on the floor, from there, well, with no beds, you know, sleeping in the mess, sleeping in the lounge. And we were there right at the end of the next day before the fog lifted enough for us to fly back home. But that was the only time we ever used it. So it was quite an education to look down and see this tunnel, think, if you had to 
got to go in there, but I'll skip it and worry him. Just for the yeah. tape, I, I know what you're talking about, but people watching might not, so could you just explain how FIDO actually worked? Well, it's a big, like a, like a railway tunnel, a big railway tunnel. It's got two-inch pipes running down the side with holes drilled in, and they pump high-octane fuel down it and ignite it, and it makes virtually a tunnel. And you fly into this tunnel, but when you want to land, the heat coming off the fumes of the petrol under the wings makes a float, and you use up the bulk of the runway, and sometimes a bit more than the runway, to get the old lady down. The night we landed, where we turned off to, to, off the flare path, uh, one of the pipes blew, and lumps of concrete blew up everywhere, and everybody straight away thought Germans bomber, because then they had to divert the aircraft coming down away from that. Uh, when you landed, there was a jeep in front of you and you had a big sign, follow me. So you followed him round and you parked where, where, where there was a place you could park. You don't think there's dispersals anymore, they were parked anywhere, you know. So no fear of the Germans coming because they couldn't see anyhow. So that was my one experience on Fido, that was enough. Uh, my skipper lived in Montrose, which is way up north of Scotland. So I went up there. Oh, for a bit. We had we flew six weeks on, one week off. And it, when you had your week off, you had to leave your name and address of where you would be. So as if there was a, a big job on, you could be recalled. Well, I was never recalled, but that was one of the stipulations. Uh, there was one crew were recalled, and I think it was navigator didn't turn up. They were out, gone. That was one of the stipulations. However, we went to Montrose, and it, he lived out quite a way out of town, little country place. Had a wife and I'd two, three kiddies, I think. Yeah. Oh, we had a ball. Uh, Ed's was a little village, because Ed Montrose, he was there as a CFI, you see, so he lived there. And uh, went to this village cafe, and rationing was on, of course. But uh, we went in, and uh, one of the waiters came up and said, Oh, the usual? And he said, Yes, I'll sit you upstairs. Christ, bloody bacon, eggs, <laughs> And I felt a bit guilty to think that the poor bugs down below were on bloody spam and chips, and here we are. But he, he, God, he was, he was a real popular guy, old Howie. God, everybody liked him, but he was efficient. He was efficient. So we come to, we've been had this feed, we had a catch train at Edinburgh at 10 o'clock. Well, we hailed a taxi. <laughs> he was drunk. And Ed's would be, I suppose, 15 miles at a, at a, a near enough rough case. Well, then we pushed him out of a bloody drain a couple of times because he, oh, the snow, the snow, you know. We got to the station, the Edinburgh Castle Hotel is just across from there. So we rushing there to get a couple of bottles to drink on the train. As we come out, the bloody trains 
starting to move off. We were about 100 yards away. We're crossing over and so fast in all my life. And the bloody guard dragged me by the car. <laughs> Get on! Because <laughs> Christ, I'd missed that. I'd have been a day late back at the squadron. So I knew if I had one bottle of beer in the hand, the guard, get on! <laughs> yes, my last experiences. So, the fateful night. Went to Dortmund. Yeah, one o'clock in the morning. And it was the best running run into a target I'd had. There was no flak. No fighters that we could see. And I said to Skipper, I said, Christ, this is something new. We should have bloody well guessed that something was going on. Went through and I just dropped the markers. And I said to Skipper, for once we'll get a decent bloody photo. And all of a sudden, bloody hell, little poor bloody old girl, she shook and she shaked and she shuddered and she turned over on the side and the skipper said, shit, we've been hit. Get out. Well, get out, so right, you pull that hatch back in the front. And I looked out there and thought, geez, I'm not going to jump out there, right over top of the target. Anyhow, we'd been told when you've got your chute on, you hang on to it like it was a vivacious blonde. Count to ten. Well, by Christ, if she'd have belonged, I'd have squeezed the blade of life out of her. And count to ten, boy, I'd be the fastest fellow counting to ten you know of. So, that was how I made my entry, my first and only parachute jump into Germany. Well, I thought, Christ, we're right beside the town. All the rest of them landed in and around the city. I was first out, and he made... He always turned to port, but some unknown reason he turned to starboard. He doesn't even know, like we were talking about it, you know, years ago. He doesn't even know why. So he turned back over the town. Whereas when I went out, we were out on the edge because the wind drifted, you see. And they all got picked up. No matter. And the engineer, we, they swear he landed alive. And next thing I saw him being thrown on the back of a truck and they were feel if Sibbies did him in. Poor bastard, 89 trips. He got awarded DFM posthumously later. But I thought, Christ, if, if they, anybody picks me up here, there'd be no excuse me, the bloody will shoot you on the spot. So there was a big drain of sorts there, so I took my harness off my parachute and buried it in the swamp. I thought, oh, you know, I wouldn't find out. And I thought, here I am. The thing that saved my life and here I'm tramming it into the mud. Straight to water and I was on the loose for three days and got as far as the Rhine River. Hide in the daytime, walk at night. You had a little ration kit, escape kit, had Horlicks tablets and a... Um, plastic water bottle for you to carry water in, and a compass, uh, just the basics. But in February there was not much in the field, a few rotten cabbages and such, so you virtually lived on these, one of those Horlicks tablets, they were highly concentrated, you know. 
So, we uh, ended up with the Ryan Rubin and the old home guard came along and he says, what the crap is? He had a bloody shotgun in his hand and he said, oh jeez. I says, next Pappy he says, come with me. <laughs> and I said, Christ, bloody shotgun. Anyhow, that night, what happens, the bloody mosquitoes come over. We're in Jewsburg. So he takes me down to the toilet. And the bloody... Okay, the black shirts, boys and girls, were down there. And he stood me in the corner, and he had his rifle fixed with a fixed man, and he said, you stand there, you stand there. And they'd, if it hadn't been for him, they'd, they were bad news. They were all 15, 16, 17 years old. They were, the woman was bad as the boys, they were bad news. All dressed in black, guns, knives. So, that was where I first spent my 21st birthday in the Gestapo headquarters in Jewsburg. Slice of bread, bread and a drink of water. And they thought it was a bloody joke and I couldn't see the humour of it. We had a, used to have a mess party once a month on the squadron. And I was the only Kiwi. The one who was there when I arrived, he'd finished and gone. So I decided we'll have the mess party and be my birthday party as well. And the skipper, he was a PMC. Well, a PMC, you know what a PMC is? He's in charge of rations, the food and the grog and such. Anyhow, over a period of time, he had managed to acquire, that's the best word, three bottles of whiskey. McCullum's whiskey. Anyhow, we didn't get to the party, did we? <laughs> when I went back to the squadron to pick up my gear, it had disbanded, but there was still the, uh, a few of the irks and the administration staff there. And I went to see, when I went to get my gear, I said, the officer said, a matter of interest, did you ever have that party? And when we were shot, oh, he said, yeah, and he said, the whiskey was bloody good. <laughs> yes. So... Well, Germany. It was a case of uh, you walk most places because the German guards would say, well, it's your fault we have to walk because your planes, they shoot up everything. In those days, the, the uh, tempests, the typhoons, they were having to board anything could move. They bloody well shot up. So that they had, everything they had to move was at night. And you see on the railway signs, there were carriages and trucks all blown up. They had a ball, those fellas, because by that stage there wasn't a hell of a lot of opposition from the Luftwaffe because they'd been pretty well. But uh, they blamed it. the Red Cross. They said, we can't get the Red Cross particles through to you because of your planes, they shoot them up. <laughs> so, the... Uh, well, I've got to read this bit. Uh, are you interested in prison camp at all? Yeah. Uh, uh, I 
Okay, that night some mosquitoes come over and drop one or two bombs. Everybody hurried down to Air Raid Hilton. I was standing in the middle of a hostile crowd until it was all over. From where I saw the inside of my first prison camp and was not very impressed by the barbed wire. Next day I was taken to Dusseldorf by truck as here was a small holding centre. There was some, that same night we were taken to a train and sent to Cologne where we spent the next 12 hours in the men's lavatory where there was a woman attendant. From here it took two days to get to Frankfurt. <laughs> where were to go to the interrogation centre. Now travels we saw many of the planes that places that we had bombed and it was to our hearts good to see the damage. Communication system was in a shocking state and their railways were beyond any state of repair. We arrived at Dulag Luft, you've heard of Dulag Luft, the interrogation centre. For the next nine days we had solitary confinement interrogations, the only comfort that we had at all was the bombing that and general fire that could be heard in the distance. Food was still our main worry. Until we'd reached Dulag Luft we received two slices of bread per day. Here the rations were better. The menu being as follows. Breakfast at 8 o'clock, two slices of bread and tea. Dinner, pot of gruel. Tea, two slices of bread and coffee. You could live on this, but you're always hungry, and that was part of the, problem, the procedure to make you talk. All things came to an end, and on Wednesday, 7th of March, we were taken from the cells, put on a train for Wetzlar to Red Cross Depot. Here we lived like lords for two days. Ate as much as he would live like lords, as, as we could wash, had clothes to keep warm and could get a certain amount of good food. It was here that we made our first introduction to Red Cross parcels, things that were to play an important part in our lives in the next month. First prison camp was at Langwasser in Nuremberg. It didn't look too hopeful when we first arrived. Everywhere we went, we were searched, searched again, searched a third time. And we were searched when we arrived at the huts. It was a large camp and only one of the few in the surrounding areas. There were 140 of us to go into a compound about 500 yards long and 100 yards wide. So we had enough room. There was an old kitchen, so some of the higher-ups decided that we would pool all Red Cross rations and eat in a communal mess with the German rations and the Red Cross we managed to live. We had a bloody good chef. It's amazing what he could make up of baked beans and spaghetti and gruel. We were there three weeks altogether and on that time we had grown from 140 men to 2,250 all in the same compound. And our space was long past crowded. There were tents and huts everywhere, just like a public works depot. As each draft came in, we met old cobbers who had joined our ranks and we learned the latest news of war. We also learned a lot of rumours. 
And one of the drafts, five members of my crew turned up. And it was a great day of exchanging experiences. It was the first thing they said was, shit, we thought you were dead. <laughs> we were counted twice every day. The whole business took upwards of an hour for each parade, as the juries would never agree on the final total. Consequently, two and three counts were needed every time. These men, there were 21 of us working in the cookhouse, and so we were exempt from parades as the meals came after the parades. By the time we'd had to leave Nuremberg, everything was becoming organised. We had proper utensils for cooking with, we had now had uh, cutlery and crockery, which was a change from tins and pieces of wood. The worst thing about camp was a large amount of people with dysentery. Every person had it, and you couldn't hope to get into rid of it, as the food was all too liquidy. There was quite a scope for rumours. Some had fantastic ideas about the war. The best rumour I heard was one day when there was no gunfire. Somebody heard it that the Allies had declared a day of truce so as the Germans could bury their two million dead. <laughs> the Allies continued to advance when it became evident that we would be recaptured. The Germans put us on the road for Munich. 1 p.m. on the 4th of April, we commenced our 100-mile march to Munich. We weren't too happy about that. The march took us through some very interesting spots, but we didn't have feel very much in the need mood to appreciate these places. On the whole of our trip, we were supplied with Red Cross parcels and spent, apart from some potatoes and an occasional issue of bread, that were heart and soul. Oh, we spent most of the nights in barns, which weren't too bad. And we did in our own, did our own individual cooking. Johnny Norton, Englishman from Farnham, and I used to keep together and did all our work together. Now, I'll tell you a story about him. Oh, in the time, there were POWs on all the roads leading to Munich, and out of each column there were stragglers. So for a while there were people all over southern Germany. However, the SS guards came down and the stragglers ceased immediately. Now, we only had flying boots to walk in. And, uh, they're not built for walking in. Anyhow, this joint Nord, he was a bloody cockney, he was a hard case. Just got in, five foot six, just got into the, as a gunner. And uh, he said, if this there was a little stream running alongside the road and we pull out. So we pull out and we're in there, got our feet in the water. Nibbling away somebody out of the red cross box and bloody motorbike and a sidecar pulled out. And out gets an noble ointment. And he says, What is this? And Johnny says, Mind your own effing business, you crap bastard. And he said, I'll give you thirty seconds to be on your way. He cocked his bloody stand gun. Christ, I didn't need 30 seconds. He wouldn't have caught me with a bloody bullet. I was gone that fast. And I said to him, you could have got us bloody old shot. Oh, he said, you're from bastards. <laughs> oh, when we got back to England, I went and saw his parish and I told him, he's bloody lucky we're here because he could have got us shot. However, 
People are much more friendly and would barter with you if you could make yourself understood. It's amazing how much German you learnt, you know, basics, yeah. It was mainly peasant farming and the old method, and they were very religious. The war hadn't affected them much. They'd never been bombed, and they had no cause to be unfriendly with us. A little walking tour came to an end on Friday, 20th of April, when we entered into our camp at Mooseburg. Believe me, none of us were sorry to see the place as there had been too much activity around us lately. The camp had been filling up for weeks, and as each new draft came in, it gradually became far overcrowded. We were lucky this place was the main centre of the Red Cross, or there would have been starvation. The German rations here were surprisingly good and with our parcels we lived well. Camp itself was in a shocking state. Many of the inmates were living in tents when it rained. There was swimming. Dysentery here was worse than ever. And there was a distinct shortage of lavatories. You made a hole with your foot and did your business and covered it. it was, one there wasn't typhoid. There was a mixture of all nationalities in the camp when it was found that an epidemic of lice and later typhoid would break out. However, the gods were with us and we didn't see anything of either. The Russians were in a compound. I've never seen anything like it. They have big, big shoulders, big bodies, and only small heads. It fascinated me. And They'd give you a bloody gold ring for a tin of bully beef. They were, they were dying of starvation. They'd carried them out. You see the guys who come in. They'd carry, dragged them out, you know. Oh, no. We thought we were bad, but oh, I feel sorry for them. One day the German Russians stopped. And no one knew why. The next day we had the answer. There were guns going off, aircraft in the sky. There was a great battle for the bridge. And then the following day, the wharf was over as far as we were concerned. 12 p.m. on Sunday, the 29th of April, American tanks came into the camp and the stars and stripes were hoisted and she went up. We were liberated. So, our blood and guts liberated us. Blood and guts pattern. On the following day, Tuesday, blood and guts pattern came in with his jeep, fully dressed in the <coughs> his hunting suit, even with the pearl handle revolvers. He stood up and made promises of having the whole camp evacuated within 72 hours. Well, that didn't work out. We didn't mind. F filled in time and we received our first ration of white bread. I don't know whether he was responsible for it or not. Well, the 72 hours came and went. It was not until a week later that we eventually left for Moosburg. We had been well fed for this past week. Now, when I got back to England, in a month's leave, and I still had, I thought, well, I'm fully trained. I might as well go out the Far East and help get rid of the Japs. I wrote, in those days they had aerograms, they used to photocopy. See, so one of these, I'm going to say, I'm going to a squadron to go to the Far East, and I, I, I 
Didn't get a very pleasant letter back from her. <laughs> so, to Montrose, oh, we finished it, it was after the leave. Right, after the leave, I went back to op operational training on number 227 VLR squadron in Gravely, between Huntington and Granston. I was once more back in my own territory. The layout was very similar to my own squadron, so it wasn't hard to adopt myself to the life, even though I had been off four months from it. Monday the 15th of June, 45, saw me commence flying duties again once more. I was not all impressed with my crew. And uh, they were all unexperienced, apart, of course, from flying experience. The next day I changed my crew. <laughs> Perhaps uh, I, I don't know what the word is. Perhaps I expected too much, having been through a competent crew in times of pretty rough. But uh, I, I just couldn't hack it for these guys. They're all the experienced part, of course. Next day I changed my crew, and again a few. <laughs> few days later, I must have been a bastard of course. I now had a skipper with many hours of training command and the crew weren't too bad. Eventually three three changes were made in the crew and it was much better for it. Training was similar to our previous operational training except that they had a lot of a few new ideas and different techniques. Formation flying, low level bombing were the main forms of training. In time we became proficient. By some fluke chance I managed to come by the best low-level bombing on the squadron. Later in our training we went on Cook's tours over Germany. They were great for sightseeing as the height we flew at was 1500 feet. Seems strange to fly over the Ruhr, once a hellhole and now so silent. Also to look at Dortmund where I met my fate. We did three such trips, with each time carrying different passengers, going on different routes. In all we saw north, south and central western Germany and didn't do too badly. Later on we did trips into Germany to bring home members of staff. Landing or landing at badly battered German drums was a pleasure. We saw some of the devastation caused by our bombs. The best part of the training was what we during bullseyes. On these, we did a long flight. At the end, we would run a bombing range where target indicators were dropped for us to make a bombing run. We were lucky, as on such trips, we were dropping markers. So it gave us some little excitement in the flights. When it appeared imminent that war with Japan was going to come to an end, we were taken off training and put on what they called dodge trips to Italy. We were to fly to Italy, pick up 20 persons, return to England with them. Gravely sent out three aircraft each day, weather permitting. And at 7 o'clock on Wednesday, 15th of August, we were in our, on our way to Bari in southern Italy. It was an interesting trip down, as many first trips are. We were, went across France to Toulouse, over to sea to 
Capria, down to Naples and across Italy to Bari. My first impressions of Italy were not very hopeful. It was brown and looked dried up and the heat from the sun was even unbearable in the aircraft. All the towns looked white against the colour of the earth and Vesuvius, well, it wasn't much. The only good thing we had seen so far was the sea. It was blue and there were some breakers on the beaches. We arrived in Bari at 3pm. When we climbed out of the aircraft, we landed on matting. Matting just laid on the sand. Christ, it rattled and the wind landed on it. Seemed hot enough to fry eggs on the ground. Our first thoughts were food and the sea. So we ate about, we ate, set about both. After milk combined mainly of watermelons and tea, we went in the sea and it was grand. The day of our arrival in Italy was VJ Day. So once more I'd missed out Victory Day in England. We went into the town that night but things were very quiet. There were people mainly of the younger generation in, everywhere and someone was firing very lights into the air. So, next morning we were on our way home with 20 happy types of on board. They were all soldiers. They'd been out there four years so they had cause to be happy. The route home was the same. The route out, at 6pm we landed at Timbernham to discharge our cargo and declare our dutiable goods. We did three such trips. Each time same procedure took place. The most enjoyable part of the trip was the sea and the latter cherry brandy, bottles of which I brought home. Sleeping in Barrio was a problem. It was always hot and we were seemed to be forever entangled in mosquito nets. On my return from the last trip to Italy, we found that our squadron had disbanded. The place was deserted except for a few lost souls. Frank and I had been placed at Brighton. My life in the squadron finished on Thursday, 6th of September 1945, and I was sorry to had left flying behind Preps River. It was hard to put part with all my flying clothing, but the war was over and that was it. I was not sorry about leaving my crew, they'd been fair enough as a gang and each knew his own job but they lacked that something that seemed to seven men make in a team. So there you are. Hmm. Very, very interesting. So you do you, have, do you sort of regret ever having to go to the to the war, or was no, it no? No, I, I, I'm written about the last till about to leave. Conclusion. With the conclusion of my home, my leave on Christmas Day also came the conclusion of my career in the Royal New Zealand Air Force. It was automatic that at your disembarkation leave finished your term of service. It seemed a strange way to say goodbye to the life that once you had lived for the past three years. No handshakes with your friends, 
coined words is when you normally leave a position. However, for all that, I feel proud to have thought that my last three years had gone the way they had. There's no real way of describing service life to those who have never seen or never been in the services. Too many small points are missed out, and they're what makes the services what they are. The main thing I found in the Air Force was the friendship that you have with fellow flyers. Not like the friendships that some people have in everyday life. It was lasting and not only for convenience. Many of my friends lie in the quietness of the earth, of peace, but their friendships. such that it will never be forgotten. Eric Wedding's list of these for those who read those that return to their loved ones is Frank Pribble and Ellen Ray. Now I have to make it into a new life with new friends. Gone is all the thrill, excitement, worry, glory. It was once mine. It has passed with the time, but its memories will never die. To this life I owe all my experience and knowledge, and I'm sure that both will stand me in good stead during my days to come. During my Air Force career of three years and 125 days, I've grown from a boy to a man. I've seen much of the bitter and sweet of life. Let's look back on it all now. It was a grand life, and I'm in a position to say that I can always be proud to say that I served with the Royal Air Force in the British Empire. I still get upset. <laughs> Understandable. Well, that's it. Okay. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.